21 through 25. I had a brief moment of panic when I entered this pulpit. I could not find my sermon. I was glad to look up and find it on that front pew and reminded that I was going over it before the service. Well, I have the text before me and the sermon. Romans chapter 7, verses 21 through 25. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good, for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. A wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of sin, but with the flesh, uh, excuse me, uh, with with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for uh, this text of scripture. We thank you for the hymn that we just sung. Uh, God, there there is, well, there's something here for the believer, surely. And, And we pray that. Oh, Holy Spirit, through the preaching, you would you would bring this truth more, uh, more fully and more intimately to home in our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, we've been analyzing Paul's statement in chapter seven, verse 14. If you look or listen to that again, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal sold under sin. That's the fundamental proposition that Paul is making in this new section and the question that we've been analyzing, and there were two primary views and then a third view that uh, was something of a combination of the two. Uh, the question that we've been asking is, can the believer say this? Can the believer say, I am carnal, sold under sin? And I think we've all been in agreement. I've yet to find one of you who disagrees uh, with the second view that, yes, this is Paul speaking as a believer. Even now, the first view is ready to counter on this point. Are you saying even as a mature believer? The Apostle Paul, at the height of his preaching ministry, writing this great epistle, he said it even then. And we say, yes, even then. Of course, the other view, the first view, which is the view of the patristics, the fathers, it came back into prominence in the 20th century, uh, is that, no, Paul is assuming uh, the position of being back under the law uh, for the sake of argument, which he says is not true of the believer. Obviously, the believer is not under the law. Well, that's, that's the debate, and we've landed decidedly on one side. Last time in verses uh, 15 through 20, we saw Paul's explanation of what he meant by this, what he meant by I am carnal, sold under sin. He states his dilemma in those verses. Again, a dilemma which the believer knows well, which you know well, which I know well. And that is the fact that his desire to do the good is not matched with his practice. He is explaining his own frustration. The good that he would do is frustrated in the realm of his actions as he looks upon himself. That's what he means when he says, I'm carnal, sold under sin. My my actions are still sinful, even though I don't want them to be. And he, he gives the reason why that is. The reason why it is that he does what he would not, and the answer being, which he gives twice in verses 17 and 20, namely, sin which dwells in me, from which we derive the doctrine of original or excuse me indwelling sin not original sin but indwelling sin after which owen wrote his his great work indwelling sin in the believer but as we come to the final stage in the argument verses 21 through 25 
uh, we reach a new stage. So in many ways, Paul is just repeating the, the, the dilemma, only he's doing so in terms of uh, uh, two principles. His interest is to assess how this came to be, namely how it is that in the realm of his actions, he does not do what he wishes or he does what he wishes he would not. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, speaking of these verses, the apostle now takes up the other side. Why is it that he cannot do what he really wants to? So let us look and see why that is and what we find. And the first thing that I would stress as we find in verses 21 through 23 is the apostle saying that there are two laws which are present in me. That is in me, the believer, even the mature believer. So that means in you as well, if you are a believer. Two laws. What does he mean by a law? Well, we've come across this word before. Uh, the way in which he's using it in these three verses is in terms of a principle, an abiding operative principle, something that he finds is invariably true in his experience as a believer. As he analyzes his own actions and his thoughts, and even as he just expressed the contradiction between those two things, he finds in his life these two powerful uh, operative principles. But not one, but two. One which tends to the good. And the other which tends to the bad. And so they are opposed to each other. Now, I want to look first of all at what he says in verse 21. He says, I find then, he speaks of the first law. A law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. So he already alludes to the second law, but he only speaks of the one. And here uh, in John Owen's work, this is a collection of three of his works, but the third of which is Indwelling Sin in this book. He offers a very helpful analysis of this verse. In fact, the whole of the work in dwelling sin is based upon verse 21. And he offers four propositions, uh, which I will share with you because I think uh, it's a helpful way to get things going in the sermon. The first thing he says is that indwelling sin is a law. Now, I've just been saying that, but I was speaking of a law generally. Now I am particularizing it. The first law is indwelling sin. It is, he says, an operative, effective principle. That's the first proposition. The second is that this law is found in believers. Of course, this is the disputed point, the second point. Is he speaking as a believer or is he placing himself back under the law for the sake of argument? But Owen seems sure. Uh, and he says so at the beginning of his book. In fact, he says, I'm going to take it for granted. He's not even going to argue with the other side. And so he and the Puritans were agreed. That Paul is speaking of the believer. Owen seems sure, so do I. This is something which Owen says, and, and, and certainly Paul uses this very language, that the believer finds in himself once he is saved. You remember what I said last time about Spurgeon, that before he was saved, his mind was full of blasphemous thoughts. And then he was saved and he was freed from those thoughts. And he thought that was the end of it. Only very shortly after that, he found they had returned again. He found them. That's what Paul is saying. I find then a law that evil is present with me. This is something the believer finds in himself. He thought it wasn't there, but then uh, with time he finds it is there. To his chagrin. And so Owen says he found it. An experience of the power of this law of sin in himself. So believers find it in themselves. They find it as a law. 
Third, Owen says, the habitual inclination of the believer's will is unto the good. He says, uh, Paul says, I find in a law that evil is present with me, but that isn't the full story. Because I am, Paul says, the one who wills to do the good. That is the habitual inclination. Even though evil is present in me, even though I find indwelling sin in me as a law, I wish it wasn't there. Nevertheless, Owen says, grace has sovereignty in their souls, despite the presence of indwelling sin. And so to speak of indwelling sin is to speak of the full story. And this is what distinguishes the believer from the unbeliever. In fact, one of the strongest arguments we could give in favor of the second view, what I've called it. That only the believer could speak of this conflict. The unbeliever could say, well, evil is present in me, but that's the end of the story. There's nothing more to be said. Only the believer can go on. The one who wills to do good. There's something good that I find in myself, even in my will, which is the seed of my personality. Something which is not only good, but wills to do the good. Thus, there are two laws for the believer, but only one for the unbeliever. Number four, Owen says, evil is present within believers. Even though they will to the good, evil is found within them. How so? By indwelling sin. And the tendency of sin is unto evil. Nothing less than that. In other words, let us not try to minimize, as some people do in their exposition of this passage, the evil of indwelling sin. There is something evil which the believer carries in his breast and in his flesh, and it opposes the good that he would, the good that is, which, uh, that, uh, that, which, uh, that is in him. And so this constitutes no small problem for the believer. For Owen says, offering one last quote, there is an exceeding efficacy and power in the remainder of indwelling sin and believers with a constant inclination and working toward evil. This is the law Paul is speaking of that he found in himself and which all believers find in themselves the constant tendency to sin. Uh, in fact, I, I suppose I think I read this quote last time, but I, there was just one other quote I wanted to read. Uh, because it really reconciles chapter 6 and chapter 7. He says, thus it is in believers, it is a law even in them, though not to them. Though its rule is broken, that is sin. Its strength weakened and impaired, its root mortified, yet it is a law still of great force and efficacy. A law of great force and efficacy. That's what the believer finds in him. Not a sometimes, but an always. Thus it is a law. And so the picture is this. Paul says, I will to do the good, verse 21b. What is more, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, verse 22. And there is his picture of Psalm 1, the one who delights and meditates in the law of God. He loves it. He meditates on it. He wants to do it. The law is something I love, Paul is saying. It's what I want to do more than anything. But I'm frustrated in my desire to do it. Even though I want to do it, I don't want to do it. Because, he says, I find another law in myself. The one who wills to do the good. Verse 21. And then with greater force and clarity, he says in verse 23. But I see another law in my members. After having just said in verse 22, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But, verse 23, I see another law in my members. There is the dilemma described. 
I find it, he says, now not just in himself, verse 21, but in my members, in my flesh, verse 18. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Verse 23, I see another law in my members. You, you, you get the picture. And what is the result, Paul says? The result going on with verse 23 is that I'm at war with myself. But I see another law in my members that is the one who wants to do the good, warring against the law of my mind. The result is that I am at war with myself and that I find by experience that these two laws are ever at work in me and that they are ever opposed. Inwardly, one law is I will to do the the good. I delight in the law of God. The first law is not the law of God. It is the law of my mind. It's that I want to do the law of God. I agree with the law of God. But I find this other law in my members that is constantly tending towards the evil and opposing the good. And so these two laws are set at odds. And that's precisely what we saw last time when we looked uh, in detail at Galatians chapter 5. It's just as I will to do the good. It's just as the spirit is leading me on to do the good that I find the flesh rises up in opposition and holds me back. So that whenever I sin, this is my experience. And even when I don't, I am still aware of this other law at work in me. I feel it. It's there. Uh, I talked about worship last time. Here I am preaching a sermon. Here you are listening to a sermon. We're going about uh, perhaps the highest, the highest spiritual acts uh, that a believer can engage in in this life. And yet even then, if if this other law isn't prevailing, it may be. Perhaps you're hopelessly distracted. Uh, You're looking at your watch. You're ready for the thing to be over. Or you're ready to eat the meal afterwards. You see the flesh is opposing the spirit. Uh, Perhaps that's the case. But even if not... It's still there opposing. It's trying and struggling to get the victory. And so you're aware of both laws, even uh, when the law to sin, the law of sin is not prevailing. But I still haven't finished. Paul uh, goes on to say the most striking thing of all, something that those who hold to the first view that uh, this could never be said by a believer except for the sake of argument Something they say a Christian could never say. It's impossible. He says, as a result of this war, I am brought into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. The first view says a believer could never say that. The believer is victorious over sin. He's not a defeated foe. Well, here's the picture of what Paul is describing when you take verse 23 as a whole. It's that the result of this conflict at war in us is defeat. It's the law of sin which resides in my members prevailing over me. It sets itself opposed to my will to the good. And it brings me into sin described as captivity. So that Paul is saying his sense of frustration is this. Namely that the power of sin is greater than my will to the good. And so sin beats me down and it wins. In other words, Paul is answering the question, why do I ever sin as a believer? And he's describing this in the most dramatic way possible. Here I am, renewed in the inner man. My affections, my desires are to the good. I'm made new. And yet I find at the same time that there's another law warring against my inmost desire. 
and taking me captive, leading me into sin itself, the very thing I don't want to do, or uh, keeping me from doing the very thing I want to do. As I am engaged in this battle, I am defeated. The imagery that Paul uses is that of a military campaign. One side makes its move, the inner man desires to the good, and the other counters. Sin rises up in opposition. What's in my sin? And that's what we analyzed last time. And this is why we sin. It's the only explanation. You see, the explanation can't be that we lack the desire to the good. If that is the answer, then you're not a believer. That's why you sin. You're an unbeliever. But if you're a believer, the reason you sin isn't because you lack the will or you lack the desire to the good. For you have been renewed inwardly. But the answer which Paul gives here is the contrary power at work in us, in our members, in our flesh. It is a powerful, deceptive, destructive force in our lives. A menace, I keep calling it. It is powerful. Indwelling sin is powerful enough even to conquer my will as a believer. It's powerful enough to frustrate my desire to, to, the, to do the good. It is powerful enough even at times to draw me into sin. And when it does so, I am its captor. Or, or it's captive. It is my captor. And this leads uh, to the cry of despair once more, uh, which the first few says a believer could never say. Now we're in verse 24. A wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, they say, who could say that? Is it appropriate that a believer would ever describe himself as wretched in light of the description of him in chapters 5 and 6? What is more, what believer would ever say, who? Who will deliver me? As though he doesn't know. And yet Paul seems to portray it here as someone who doesn't know. Like a man who's under the law. But if you'll allow me uh, to quote John Murray once more. He says this. And I think he gives a very persuasive answer to their, uh, to their arguments. He says, at this stage of the portrayal of the conflict, we should not find undue difficulty with such strong language, namely the captivity to sin and that uh, of feeling wretched. These two things, the first view says, no believer could ever argue. Not so, Murray says, as the argument progresses, it becomes more and more obvious and natural that Paul should express himself in this way. And, and as I keep arguing, we as the believer are relating to him in this. We're saying, I know exactly what you're talking about. You remember what I said, Dr. Gaffin said in class, it just rings true. Murray goes on, the sense of misery will cause us surprise only if we have failed to appreciate the contradiction and frustration set forth in the preceding verses. Uh, you read certain men, uh, even, uh, even Lloyd-Jones, and you get the sense they're saying, I am surprised any man could say that a believer would say this. Well, Murray is saying, no, you've misunderstood. You've missed the point. It will only surprise you if you fail to appreciate the contradiction and the frustration that Paul is setting forth here. And, and really, we ought to use language just that strong. It is frustrating. I don't understand myself. And, and, it, and, and we should even go as far as to say that there are two contradictory laws at work in us. So that I do find in myself a contradiction. And it is my very sense of that that leads me to cry out. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Remember that Paul is recounting an experience 
the believer's experience of sin, of his own sin, one which is frustrating in the extreme, especially when it is offset against his realization of his inward renewal in the previous two chapters. Yes, there is nothing more frustrating than to sin as a saint, and yet that is the very thing I find I'm doing all the time. I find, as a result of this, even that I should long for deliverance. Deliverance from what? We have to be clear here exactly what Paul is saying. Paul is saying deliverance from the very body in which the contrary law resides. The law of sin resides in my flesh, in my body, which is still yet unredeemed. Inwardly I'm renewed, but outwardly I'm not. Death is still at work in my members, so too is sin. I find sin and death in myself, in my body, and I long to be rid of the body, if only that I might put aside the conflict. And so Paul is not saying in total, I long to be freed from myself. He's saying, I long to be freed from the body. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? The body in which this contrary law resides and troubles him constantly. The thought is, if I am like this, even at my best, then I cannot find salvation, which includes sanctification, through the law. Even the believer at his best cannot find sanctification through the law. Why? Because... Even at his best, he's still too sinful. There is still too much sin which resides in him, namely in his flesh. And so what he needs is not the law. What he needs is grace. He needs grace as a power in his life. He needs grace to be reigning in him. You remember uh, what he says in chapter 5, verse 20. He said, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And that is true, even though Paul is speaking historically, that's true even in the experience of the believer. When he finds that sin is abounding in his life, he realizes that what he needs is not simply the commandments. What he needs is the grace of God to help him. Grace to help in time of need. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16. I need, in other words, even as a believer, to be delivered from myself. That is precisely the feeling that sin creates in the believer. But that is not all. For the cry of despair is matched by the assurance of deliverance. You notice what he says in verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the first part of verse 25. And for this, he thanks God. Why? Because God will deliver him from this body of death where the law of sin resides. Now immediately, in light of that verse, I say... What becomes of their arguments? Does uh, the man who utters, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin, does he not answer his own argument? Does he not, uh, or, or his own question, I mean, does he not end on a note of hope? Not of despair, but of hope. The cry of despair is matched by the assurance of deliverance. And the note is one of triumphant hope. It is a note of assurance, of thanksgiving. Because he knows God will do this. I need to be delivered from myself. Thank God God will do it. And so the answer to the question posed in verse 24. Who will deliver me from this body of death. Is confidently given in the first part of 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ 
our Lord. God will do it. How will he do it? He'll do it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul is here looking forward confidently to the resurrection. The renewal of the outer man in which sin dwells. The end of the conflict, the day in which the outer and the the inner will agree forevermore and sin will never more trouble the believer. The resurrection, which he later speaks of in chapter eight, verse 11, like this. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, that's presently true. I'm renewed inwardly. I have the spirit inwardly. Then he says. In the future, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The spirit dwells in you now. Oh, but just wait. The day is coming when he will renew you even in the outer man. You can be sure of that. He speaks uh, later in verse 8, verse 23. And here I note the same uh, double note of frustration matched by uh, exuberant hope. He says, not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the spirit. Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. You see, Paul Paul is saying we're frustrated. We're disappointed in ourselves. We're groaning. We're longing for something. But at the same time, this inward groaning is matched by this exuberant, exultant hope. This is the believer's confident expectation. Paul will go on to say. By which he offsets the present frustrations and conflicts that are bound up with this life. None so great as the conflict he has with himself. Namely, indwelling sin. There is no frustrating that's a frustration that so burdens the believer in this life. Than that of his own sin. But of this he is assured of deliverance. Through the same means by which all blessings flow to him, namely through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And this is what bears him up and keeps him from despair. Not as though to minimize the sense of frustration and futility that is bound up with the sufferings of the present time. No, these are very real indeed. It's just Paul says, chapter 8, verse 17 and 18. They can't compare to what is coming to us. What's going to happen. The very thing that we are assured of and longing for, namely... The redemption of our bodies. To that our present frustration cannot compare. The glory that will be revealed in us, Paul says, on the last day. And so Paul can cry out and you can cry out like a defeated combatant in the very moment that you sin. The times in which uh, the evil tendency in your flesh overcomes your desire to the good. Something which is bound to happen even in the best of us. But the the cry which a man utters as a believer in verse 24 is not the cry of final defeat. For he is still able to say even as he lies on the ground. uh, The sense here, I didn't say it earlier, let me say it now. It's as though he's lying on the ground and sin, the, the enemy combatant, is pointing the spear in his face saying, you're mine. Even at that moment, Paul says, there you are lying on the ground, you're defeated. You've fallen into sin. Oh, wretched man that I am, did I really do this again? Even in that very moment, the believer looks to himself and says, I find nothing. Oh, but thank God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The cry of despair is matched by the assurance of deliverance. He will deliver me. He will deliver me even from 
this body of sin. And he will deliver me even now out of my present captivity to sin. He will lead me out of it. He will lead me on into victory even now. And any ver- any version of what Paul is expressing in verse uh, dear me, that is a difficult expression for me to get out. Any version of what Paul is expressing <laughs> in chapter 7 that does not account for what he says in verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Misses the most important statement that he gives. The most important aspect of the total argument. I find in light of that single statement that every difficulty vanishes, whether from the standpoint of of argumentation or simply by experience. You see, it is possible to go too far. We don't want to describe our battle with sin as one of total defeat or total captivity. We are aware of the fact that Jesus has set us free, that sin shall not have dominion over us as believers. And yet we are aware at the same time that at times sin does take us captive once more. How do we account for it? Well, Here is what Paul says. There are moments where the flesh rises up against the spirit or the inner man and prevails. But even then the believer is able to say, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. I thank God I am assured of victory and that sin can never gain mastery over me. I thank God that I will be delivered. I thank God that there will be a day when I am free from sin altogether. Yes, sin still remains in the believer. But here in this single statement, the believer is assured a final and total victory, of which Paul will go on to express more fully in chapter 8. But the last thing he says occurs at the end of chapter, uh, at the end of chapter 7. He says, so then, as a summary statement, with the mind I, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. This is, uh, as I say, a kind of summary. And you notice he's describing two servitudes. With my mind, I serve the law of God. That agrees with chapters uh, 6 and the first part of 7. And yet, uh, the the new contribution to the argument we discovered in chapter 7 is that with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Both things are true. Clearly, Paul is expressing, even in this verse... Uh, A total contradiction. But nothing less than this can adequately summarize the conflict that the believer knows. When the saint sins. When the redeemed sinner disobeys his God. How else can you explain that except as a total contradiction? Yes, with the law of my mind. With my mind I serve the law of God. But to my own amazement and perplexity with my flesh I'm, I'm still serving the law of sin. And that is precisely what leads him to cry out, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will bring this conflict to a final end? There are two sides to the believer's experience, Paul is saying. And from this arises a conflict and a war which sets him at odds with himself and even causes him to cry out and to long for deliverance from his own sinful body. But having said all of that, I want to offer six points of application. The first being this. Luther famously said about the believer that he is, now I don't know if I'll get the Latin right, he is simul justice et peccator. The believer is simultaneously just 
and sinner. He is righteous and he is the sinner. He's both at once in the same person. Now that is admittedly a difficult truth to express. And at times uh, you notice, uh, even in modern movements today, such as the Revoice movement, that these things are taken uh, to utterly antinomian extremes. Uh, the Revoice movement being uh, clergy in the PCA saying, well, I'm a homosexual, and yet I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm a Christian. And they try to say both things at once. That, that is not what Luther was saying at all. What Luther was expressing in that famous statement is what Paul is expressing here. It's the contradiction. It's the fact that, yes, I'm a saint. I'm redeemed. I'm regarded holy by God. And yet I'm, I'm still a sinner. I'm both things in the same person. How can I express that? In fact, if Paul had never written what he wrote in Romans 7, I don't know that I ever could express it. How can I express or even begin to comprehend this contradiction in myself? And yet I find it is true. God regards me and his son as one who is just and righteous. And yet I'm still one who sins every day. The believer is both. Just and sinner. The second point is this. And this is a point I find Sinclair Ferguson making a great to do about in this book, The Whole Christ. And that is that the believer must learn to distinguish between sin's dominion and sin's indwelling power. In fact, I think uh, in, in the Owen quote I read earlier, he was saying the same thing. Indeed, sin's dominion is broken. It's greatly weakened. It's not ruling over the believer, but don't go too far with this. There are Christians who have. They say, well, you know, it's possible to be perfect in this life. The, the, the Methodist Wesleyan uh, holiness movement was guilty of that. I don't know anyone here uh, who would honestly claim that. We know how sinful we are, how sinful we can be. We need to recognize that the dominion of sin is broken. And so we can't go too far in that other expression uh, that is so common. I remember hearing this all the time in the Baptist church. Uh, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Well, I like that as far as it goes. But at times, that can be the most antinomian thing a man ever said. I'm just a sinner. You know, God, but God saved me. No, at times this man needs to hear the power of sin's been broken in your life. But just as soon as he starts to go down that road, the thing he's bound to find is a law in himself, as Owen says, is that sin is still there. And it's still exerting its power, its influence. And it's just at that moment, this is the whole point that Ferguson makes, that the believer needs to realize that my salvation isn't called into question. I'm not suddenly uh, an enemy of God just because I find that I, uh, I find sin still in my life. This doesn't need to throw my whole, uh, the question of my salvation into question. I need to realize that though the dominion of sin is broken, sin is still bound to happen in my life. And that every time I sin, I don't need to question whether I am a Christian. There is hardly any chapter more valuable to the Christian than Romans chapter 7 because of this. But it must be taken together with Romans chapter 6. Thus I would revisit as a third question or third point of application. Am I a slave to sin? You see, you're bound to ask that question in light of what was said in chapters 6 and 7. And admittedly, uh, just as I've, I've said before of other points, this is a difficult truth to express. Express Why does Paul use such strong language? I'm brought into captivity to sin. Didn't he just say that's impossible? But that is a question, I think, which we've already answered, looking at what Murray says. He's explaining the experience of sin countering my innermost desire. And that is an experience uh, which one is bound to express in the strongest 
possible terms. And by the way, doesn't it seem to you when you sin that you've been brought into captivity? Nowhere is this expressed better than uh, as a fourth point. Roman, uh, um, chapter 13 of the Westminster Confession of Faith on the chapter of sanctification. In section one, it speaks of lusts weakened and mortified, but still there. It says the dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed and the several lusts thereof more and more weakened and mortified. You see, it says, but not eradicated, simply weakened and mortified. Section two, it speaks of an imperfect sanctification in this life and of a remaining irreconcilable war. It says this sanctification is throughout in the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. They're abiding still some remnants of corruption in every part whence arises a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Isn't that what Paul was just saying? But it goes on to say in section three, speaking of times of defeat, but of a certain victory. Why? Because of the power of the Holy Spirit. In which war, although the remaining corruption for a time may much prevail, Yet through the continual supply and strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part doth overcome. And so the the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. At times you will be defeated. At times you will cry out as a defeated combatant. And yet, victory is assured to you. And you will be growing in grace. But as a fifth point of application, uh, let me deal with the question of the psychology of sin. It's the question of the will. The question is, is Paul saying that I never will to sin? That I always will to do the good and when I sin, it's just countering my will. Uh, That would be to take the argument too far. The truth is when the believer sins, and this is part, part of the difficulty, understanding yourself, the psychology of yourself as someone who is simultaneously a saint and a sinner, that when you sin... You wanted to do it. That's why you sinned. And yet it was a contradiction because even in wanting to do it, it was countering what was most true about you. Your innermost desire. The thing you most wanted to do. So that yes, you were set at odds with yourself. But if we were to set the priority uh, on one side of the battle, hopefully by now it is clear. Let it be on the inner man who has been renewed. Only let us not try to excuse ourselves when we sin. And so as a sixth point, returning to Owen and also to Calvin, we must see this as a matter of self-knowledge. What Paul is expressing here is the believer's knowledge of himself, a knowledge that he is gaining by experience day by day as he's engaged in the battle, sometimes knocked down, other times rising up in defeat, all the time longing for something better in the days to come. And Calvin says, and and Owen says at the beginning of his book, that believers today and in every day are brought into innumerable evils for the simple reason they don't know themselves. They don't set up a watch against themselves because they don't know the evil that they carry about them every single day. Know thyself, sinner. That is the message of Romans Chapter 7, set up a watch against yourself. Only do not ever hope in yourself. Place your hope in Jesus Christ. Place your hope in the resurrection. Look forward to it with longing expectation. 
Realize at the same time, as Paul will go on to say in chapter 8, the powerful, effective ministry of the Holy Spirit who also dwells in you. And so to answer the question, is the law sin? Chapter 7, verse 7. No, it isn't. Or what about this? Verse 13. Has then what is good become death to me? That is, has the law become death to me? No, certainly not, Paul says. Is the law sin? No, I am. I am a sinner. I am sinful. But thank God, let us see, that is not the only truth about me if I am a Christian. I am also a saint. I'm a son of God. I am full of the Holy Spirit. And uh, with great expectation, I look forward to going into chapter 8 in the weeks to come. Praise God for that. Amen. Let us come now to the table. Let me read what what Paul says uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, and then I want to read a section from Matthew Henry's um, A Way to Pray. So we'll look at the matter of examining ourselves from the standpoint of prayer. Paul says this, verse 23, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. There is the key thing. In other words, don't just come carelessly. That's what the Corinthians were doing. Take take a moment and see what's in your heart. Do you have faith? He goes on. So let uh, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, uh, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. Well, as I said, I, I, I want to read a section from this. I just finished it. It's a, you know, a great way to do your devotions is like this. Read the Bible, then read Matthew Henry's A Way to Pray, and then do that every day. That's my, that's my recommendation to everyone. At, at least uh, that's what I'm doing, and I found it very beneficial. O. Palmer Robertson, in the beginning, uh, we have several copies of these downstairs. I've been trying to encourage uh, people to, to use this. Uh, he, he, that's how he commends it. Let it be your daily companion. Wear the thing out and then get a new one. Uh, but, but what you'll notice is that there are prayers for all kinds of occasions. And there's a prayer for receiving of the sacrament of the Lord's supper. And I thought this is, this is, this is wonderful. I want to share this because I think that it gets to the heart at examining myself, the kind of prayer that we offer to God. Now it's several pages long. I just want to read excerpts from the beginning of it. He says this most holy, blessed and gracious Lord God. 
With all humility and reverence, I present myself before you. I seek your face and beg your favor. Favor. Let me experience your good work in me as an evidence of your goodwill toward me. I acknowledge myself to be totally unworthy of this blessing. I'm unfit to be invited to your table. You have graciously permitted me to hear from you in your word and to speak to me in your in prayer. Now I am also invited to fellowship with you at your holy table. I am summoned to celebrate the memorial of my Savior's death and to participate by faith in the countless benefits that flow from his sacrifice. I do not deserve to eat the crumbs that fall from this table. And yet I am invited to feast on the children's bread. Thank you for the institution of this gracious feast day. Thank you for this celebration of love which the Lord Jesus left for his church. Thank you that this ordinance has been preserved across millennia up to this present day and age. Thank you that it is regularly administered in this land. Thank you that I am personally invited by Christ to this table. Thank you that uh, I now have before me an opportunity to share in your bountiful table of grace. Lord, let me never receive this abundant provision of your grace in an unworthy manner. And then he says, skipping down a bit, prepare me for the proper receiving of the remembrance of this sacred sacrifice. Give my soul a right disposition. Move me by your spirit to have all the consecrated attitudes that are suitable for a proper participation in this ordinance. Lord, prepare my unprepared heart for this special moment of intimate fellowship with you. I think that's a wonderful way to examine yourself. You begin by saying, Lord, I'm unworthy. Like that woman said to Jesus, I'm not worthy to eat at your table. And yet to thank him at the same time. You see, some of you are held back because you don't feel worthy. I've seen you do it. I've spoken to you afterwards. Lord, I'm not worthy to come to your table. Well, admit that to him and then thank him for inviting you. And then ask him to prepare in you a right heart that you would receive this sacrament in a worthy manner. In just the way that would be most praising to him. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of the sacrament. Uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the ministry of men like Matthew Henry, uh, whose ministries go on to this very day. We are still blessed by them. God, we ask you, just as we read here in his prayer, well, we acknowledge to you, first of all, our own unworthiness and our own sinfulness. And yet you've invited us still by your grace to come and feast at your table, though we are unworthy. And all that we would ask from you, O oh God, those of us who are the true sons of God, that you would enable us through your spirit to be prepared and to be worthy uh, or, or, or to be enabled rather to come worthily to the table that is by faith. And these things we ask in Jesus name. Amen.